and welcome to Genetics Unzit, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're becoming chromosomal criminals and learning about how researchers are stealing genes from the animal kingdom and using them to improve human health. I may be a bit biased, but evolution's pretty great. I mean, when you've had 3.8 billion years of trial and error to come up with solutions, you end up with a lot of very good solutions to some very tricky problems. Need to drop your body temperature by 30 degrees for months at a time without permanent damage? There's an adaptation for that. Need to survive losing 95% of the water in your body? There's an adaptation for that. Need to replicate the DNA in every cell in your body for 200 years without getting cancer? There's an adaptation for that. I'm a firm believer that most of the current challenges we face in human health and medicine can be solved if we looked to the natural world. So this week, we're bringing you two examples of just that. To start us off, I sat down with Dr Linda Goodman, co-founder and chief technology officer of Fauna Bio, a startup developing new therapies for humans inspired by disease resistance in animals. They're looking at the genomes from a whole host of animal species to see which genes are associated with some of the amazing adaptations that could possibly be harnessed in medicine. But of course, these are genes from completely different species to us. How applicable are they to humans? By and large, we're talking about the same genes that they have and you and I have. They're just using them in a different way. They're turning them on and off in a manner that makes it less likely for them to get a disease or turning them on and off to reverse a disease. And humans do not currently have that ability for many of the common diseases, but some animals do. And that's what we're diving into. So when you've got the entire animal kingdom to draw from, how do you decide where to start? Because there's a hell of a lot of species. There are a lot of species. At Fauna Bio, we've started by focusing on the 13-line ground squirrel, just because they have so many adaptations that could be applicable to human disease. They're really a treasure trove, and we realized that we could approach many different disease pathologies by looking at the ground squirrel. What is a 13-lined ground squirrel? (laughs) I've not seen one. Where do they live? What do they look like? Do they have exactly 13 lines? They do. They have 13 (laughs) little stripes on their back. That's how they got that name. Yep. They live in the Midwest. You can actually hold them in your hand while they're hibernating. And it's kind of creepy. They feel ice cold, but they're alive. (laughs) So when they're hibernating, I mean, we should start with what is hibernation? I think most people have a rough idea of like going to sleep for winter. Mm -hmm. But is there more to it than that? Yeah, so real hibernation would be a drastic decrease in your metabolic rate for more than 24 hours. Uh, Many people think of hibernation as bears that kind of sleep for half the year, 
But when you're talking about small animal hibernators, it's actually a really dynamic process. So the ground squirrel goes down to four degrees Celsius. Their heart rate also goes down to three to five beats per minute. And they stay there for one to two weeks. And then they come out of it back to normal body temperature. And they do this cycle around 25 times throughout the winter. So they're constantly going in and out of this deep torpor state. And this creates an effect that's very similar to a heart attack or a stroke because all of a sudden their tissues didn't have very much blood or oxygen. And all of a sudden they get reperfused with a rush of oxygen and blood. And oftentimes this can cause systemic tissue damage if this were to happen in a person. But the ground squirrels are adapted to deal with this. So how do you study these animals? Do you have ground squirrels in a lab? Do you go out and catch them at different points in the winter? How, what does the research look like? So it's both of those. So we have a collaboration with the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh, and we have this colony of 13 line ground squirrels out there. We also go on trips where we catch 13 line ground squirrels to then bring into the colony because you don't want to get a really inbred colony that can really affect some of your results as well. I've got to ask, how do you catch a squirrel? <laughs> it's an interesting process. Yeah. So you're not running around with a net. Oh, you kind of are. Are you? Are you? <laughs> so one of the places that we go is kind of creepy. You have to go to a graveyard. They love that kind of environment because it doesn't get a whole lot of traffic. It's pretty quiet. It's a flat area. It has grass. Um, and those are great places for them to burrow. And essentially what you do is they're not, you're not going to coax them out of their burrows easily, but you can put a little bit of water in and then that kind of um, makes them nervous like it's raining and oftentimes they'll, they'll run out and right into your net. Oh, very smart. <laughs> and you say that they go from being in this very low oxygen state back up to a bit more of a normal one around 20, 25 times a winter. Why do they do that? Is that just the temperature warms up on one day and they think it's spring and then they get it wrong and go back to sleep? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think to the hibernation community, why exactly they're doing that is not completely understood, but it's thought that some of it has to do with the fact that your body needs periodic repair to keep from shutting down. So they're turning back on some of those repair enzymes and doing some amount of tissue repair uh, before they go back into hibernation. So we know that these amazing little ground squirrels, and there will be pictures on our website because they are <laughs> adorable, we know that they can survive these incredibly low oxygen environments. And I suppose it's more the fluctuation in oxygen that is what interests you when it comes to looking at human heart attacks. So how do you go from, okay, here's an animal with a really cool adaptation to here's a drug that we can use for humans based off it? So a lot of it has to do with combining many, many different data sets. The primary one that we use from the ground squirrels is understanding the genes that are turning on and turning off at some of these critical time points. What are the genes that are coming on as these tissues are all being reperfused? 
blood, oxygen is all coming in and they really need to protect their tissues from reactive oxygen species. What are the genes that are coming on precisely at that time point? And then what we do is bring it back to humans and we would take a data set, say, from individuals who've recently had a heart attack and compare what's going on in these animals. One of these animals has had something very akin to a heart attack, but was protected and did well. And the human had a heart attack and obviously took on a lot of damage. And so we can compare the genes that are turning on and off between those two species to try to really hone in on this is the group of genes that we think matters. And in the case of their heart being able to cope with these massive changes, what are the genes that you've found that they're using? What do they do? They actually start to turn on a lot of the collagen genes that are required for repair, but then they turn them off very rapidly and their heart actually repairs itself at a much slower rate than mine or yours would if we had had a heart attack. But when they've completed their repair, their heart looks great. (laughs) It doesn't have all of the fibrotic tissue that we would. So we repair it fast and we do a bad job. The squirrels repair it very slowly, but do a great job. We've been talking about how you've been looking at one species at a time, the ground squirrel, for example, and how that is amazing. But you've also just published data looking at a whole range of animal species all at the same time. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, so this is work that uh, began at the Broad Institute with Dr. Eleanor Carlson and Dr. Shostin Lindblad-Toe um, and also the University of Uppsala in Sweden. And the idea is that if we look across 240 mammal genomes and we look for specific base pairs that have not mutated, And really, we're talking about 100 million years of evolution that separates these animals. If this base pair hasn't changed in that length of time, it's doing something really important. So if you had a mutation there, you were a dead mammal. And that's how we know that these are really key base pairs to focus on, not only for mammals in general, but specifically for human health. So we can overlay the base pairs that we know that are conserved in these mammals with human disease data sets and really hone in on um, the specific mutations that matter for human disease. And how many of these conserved regions are there? What sort of scale are we talking? It's around 11% of the genome that is conserved. 10, 11%, that's still quite a lot. So then how do you narrow that down further? Yes, so we do that by linking these genomes back to specific traits. So we could then examine animals that have a trait and don't have a trait, let's say really long-lived species versus short-lived species, animals with big brains and little brains, and animals that can hibernate and not hibernate. And then we can look at a different pattern of conservation and say, what are the genes that are highly conserved in hibernators? They're not mutating in hibernators, but they can accumulate a few bad mutations in non-hibernators and it won't matter. But that means that when you're separating your 240 mammals into hibernators and non-hibernators, those hibernators aren't especially related to each other. Right. And there can be 
species in there that are more closely related to them that aren't hibernating. Correct. Yes. So you're now looking at like, okay, this gene has been conserved in these very disparate, very unrelated species that hasn't been conserved in their sibling species. So that's really powerful evidence to say it's something to do with the hibernation that forces this gene to be conserved. Exactly. You have it exactly right. So we compare the 13 line ground squirrel against other ground squirrels that live in more temperate climates where they don't need to hibernate. And we look at those genomes. And then we also look at bats that will hibernate and not hibernate. And we could go in and say, well, what is consistent about all of the different hibernating species? Which of their genes um, has clearly been constrained over the past 100 million years. And how many of these genes have you found? So I would say my list is around 20 that I feel confident about. That's super manageable. <laughs> yeah. Normally when people say we've identified targets, they're like, oh yeah, we've got it down to 2,000. And you're like, okay, good luck getting through that list. <laughs> but 20 sounds super manageable. So what's the next steps? So one of the great things that you can do with this is then compare to the gene regulation signatures. And what's amazing about this is these are completely independent data sets, right? One is genomics data comparing 240 mammal species. The other is gene expression data from one specific hibernator. And so we overlap those two data sets and say, do we see the genes that are conserved in hibernators also drastically changing their regulation throughout the course of hibernation. And that's how we hone in on really core hibernation genes. That was Linda Goodman. And the papers she was talking about were published just last week in Science. And of course, there's a link to them in our show notes, along with some pictures of the adorable 13-lined ground squirrel. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. Here's what's coming up from the Genetic Society. We're coming up to the deadline for the second of this year's society training grants, which can cover up to £1,200 towards travel, accommodation and registration fees if there's a genetics-related training course that would help you with your research. The deadline for this quarter's training grant is midnight on the 15th of May, so be sure to get your applications in. We've just heard about how breakthroughs in understanding human heart attacks can come from some of the smallest mammals, like the 13-lined ground squirrel. Well, now let's take it up a notch and see what we can learn from some of the biggest mammals on the planet, like the bowhead whale. João Pedro de Magalhães is a professor of molecular biogerontology at the University of Birmingham, studying the mechanisms of ageing. And again, he's not restricting himself to just studying humans. To get us started, I asked him, what exactly do we mean when we're talking about ageing? So I tend to define ageing as an inevitable and irreversible process of loss of viability and increase in vulnerability, which is a very broad definition, which kind of encompasses multiple changes, physiological molecular cellular changes, and encompasses 
also pathologies and mortality that increases exponentially with age. I notice how the word inevitable is right up there in your definition. So aging is inevitable, is it? It is inevitable in human beings, for sure, yes. It is not inevitable in, in the animal kingdom. I mean, there are species that appear not to age. So you have animals like the rockfish or some species of rockfish. You have some species of turtles and tortoises, quite unusual species that appear not to age. How old are these individuals? How old is the oldest rockfish that we know about? That's a great question. We don't know for sure because we don't have uh, methods of assessing their age. I mean, they don't have ID documents or, right? So it's all based on indirect methods. In mammals, the longest lived mammal is thought to be the bowhead whale, which has been estimated to live over 200 years. And in the wild, you know, without hospitals, without medicine, they just live longer than us and they're protected from cancer. So when it comes to thinking about human aging and how we can kind of improve our own aging as a species, why is it useful to look at all of these other animals? I think there's a, a lot that we can learn from different species. I suppose from a biomedical perspective, if you think about biomedical research, it mostly focuses on short-lived animals like mice. Mice develop diseases like cancer very rapidly. So we study the mechanisms of disease and genes associated with, with diseases in these short-lived disease-prone animals. The idea of studying these long-lived disease-resistant species is, is that it's a complementary paradigm that so whales, for example, they must have tumor suppressor mechanisms that we lack. So if we can identify, if we can figure out what makes them cancer resistant compared to humans, that may have human applications. So do whales not get cancer? They do get cancer, but if you think about a whale a thousand times heavier, a thousand times more cells than human beings, then, well, cancer starts in a one rogue cell, right? So all things being equal, an animal that has a thousand times more cells than a human being would, on average, develop cancer earlier in life. Uh, but they don't. They actually live longer than human beings. So they must have natural mechanisms for tumor suppressor that we lack. How do you study a whale? You can't exactly keep a whole bunch of them in the lab. I come from a fruit fly background, so I just have loads of genetic mutants. Super easy. You can't really do that for whales, I imagine. No, you can't. No, I don't think my, my head of department would be too happy if I just started <laughs> having whales in a lab. So, so that's one of the advantages of genomics and, and genome sequencing is that now it's, it's much cheaper, quicker, and easier to sequence a genome. So we were the first to sequence the, the bowhead whale genome. For instance, just by sequencing the genome of these amazing animals, you can gather insights and derive hypotheses for what may be their secrets to, to disease resistance and longevity. And then you can even take some of those insights and try to apply them. I mean, you can create cells with genes from whales, for instance, human cells or mouse cells. So, so there's all sorts of analysis you can then do that don't involve actually getting a whale to do experiments. So once you've got, say, the bowhead whale genome, where do you even begin to start with looking for kind of anti-cancer genes? So one way to start is by looking at existing or known tumor suppressor genes, oncogenes, so cancer-associated genes or aging-associated genes in whales. So you compare the human genes to the whale ones, and then you try to find 
evolutionary innovations, you try to find changes that, based on a computational analysis, indicate that this could be important. You can make 3D models of proteins from the bowhead whale, for example, based on the changes on the mutations that were observed in the bowhead whale compared to other mammals. And based on that, you can make predictions about what the impact of those changes in the bowhead whale are. I was going to ask, how do you separate out just random mutation, drift, like things mutate all the time and things mutate and it doesn't make any difference. You're going to expect, even if you're looking at the same gene in a whale in a human, you're going to expect differences. How do you work out which ones matter? There's a lot of tools for that, actually. So, so that's a challenge also in analyzing human genomes. I mean, if you sequence your genome, you will have changes. So how do you figure which are important and which aren't? First of all, there are not that many differences, particularly in protein-coding regions. So in the functional regions, there's not that many differences between a whale and a human being. And then for the changes you find, you can see, okay, so do you see these changes in any other mammal? I mean, if you see, if there's like a particular nucleotide or residue that changes a lot then, you know, that's probably not a very important nucleotide. I mean, it can mutate a lot without phenotypic consequences. But if you have a particular nucleotide, a particular residue in a protein that's very well conserved amongst mammals, then chances are that's, that's quite an important one. That's why it doesn't mutate ever. But if it mutates in whales, then you can say, okay, so that's probably has some sort of functional consequence. And what do these cancer-related proteins do? Do they go around killing cancer cells, preventing them from forming? How do they act? So by and large, these are cell cycle regulators. They regulate uh, whether cells divide or not. Some of them are, are involved in DNA damage responses. So how cells respond to DNA damage, how, whether they stop proliferating and, and so on. And you mentioned it's possible to take then some of these genes that you find in whales and put them in human cells in vitro. Have you tried that? We haven't tried it with bowhead whales yet, but one of the things kind of similar that we have tried is to take some genes from the naked mole rat. And so, so the naked mole rat is the longest lived rodent, and can live over 30 years, um, and it's very cancer resistant. So we have taken some cancer-related genes from the naked mole rat, and we replaced the mouse gene by the naked mole rat equivalent gene. So, so we've done that for some uh, well-known cancer-related genes like P53, in mouse cells. And actually, what I would like to do is actually make a mouse with naked mole rat genes and, and see if they live longer, if they're cancer resistant. That's what I would really like to do. Do we know why, in terms of adaptations and evolution, why some animals live for so much longer than others? Like, why should a naked mole rat have evolved to live so much longer than its other rodent relatives? I think from an evolutionary ecological perspective. Animals mostly die because they're eaten by other animals. That, that's the number one cause of mortality in mice or rats or lots of other species. And if that's the case, and particularly if you're, you know, if you're heavily predated on, then you need to have a very short sexual maturity. You need to grow very rapidly, make babies very rapidly, just have to push the, that offspring out rapidly because your life is going to be very short. On the other hand, when you look at the long-lived animals, um, well, let's take naked mole rats as an example. They live in very protective environments in which that external mortality, like predation, it's much, much reduced when compared to, to other rodents. And hence, they can evolve this longer lifespan, longer reproductive period, and so on. And where do humans fall on that scale? 
we are quite long-lived as a species. Evolutionary and, and biologically, and compared to other species, including related species of primates, we are a long-lived species. The way I see it, aging is a product of civilization and technology. It's actually a, a, an excellent product of civilization and technology. If you, you don't have to look very far into the past. You just look 150 years ago, life expectancy was about 40. Most children died. Throughout human history, most children died, which was horrible. We now live in times where childhood mortality is very low and people can live much longer lives. And that is an outcome of these various technological and societal changes and civilization development as a whole, which, yes, it has its drawbacks because now we develop all of these age-related diseases in, in later in life, but it's really the result of great progress that was made over past centuries that now allow us to have this these much longer lives than ever before in human history. So do you think that by studying other animals we'll be able to quote-unquote cure ageing? I think cure ageing is even more complicated from a technical perspective. There is also a broader issue of why we age, which, which we haven't been able to answer yet. I think that the comparative approach can provide insights on that. It can provide insights on why different species age at different paces and potentially into mechanisms for longevity and disease resistance that we may apply to humans. Now, curing aging, it's, you know, one step ahead. You know, it's, it's much more complicated than that, in part because we don't well understand the process of aging or why we age. That's all for now. Thanks to Professor Joao Pedro de Magalhães and Linda Goodman. We'll be continuing this topic next time as we find out what can we learn from the closest thing we have to superheroes in real life, tardigrades. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first create the media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arney. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>